Are you interested in free theological training? Our flagship sponsor, Midwestern Seminary, offers free theological training through their For the Church Institute. This semester, they launched three new classes, New Testament 1 and New Testament 2 with Dr. Patrick Schreiner and Missional Leadership with Dr. Charles Smith. Both have been guests of the show. These classes, along with others they offer, The Story of Everything with Jared Wilson, The Trinity with Dr. Matthew Barrett, and more are all free and accessible to you, your community group, or your church to complete at your own pace. You can learn more and sign up to begin at mbts.edu slash knowingfaith. Again, that's mbts.edu slash knowingfaith for some free theological training from Midwestern Seminary. Go check it out. You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of training the church. This is Kyle Worland. I'm joined by my co-host Jen Wilkin and JT English, who did just inform me he has a hard stop. So if you were thinking that JT wasn't a diva, <laughs> I'd just go ahead and uh, go ahead and spoil that for you. Hard stop JT in the house. How you doing, man? I, I only have so much time talk. for you, Kyle. I just want to talk. I mean, yeah, I mean, I just I just want to linger with you here a little bit. Just chat. I can tell by know? how you host this podcast. You just want to linger. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, oh. Fair enough. That one that one cuts deep. Uh, well, we have been journeying through the story of Exodus, and uh, if time allows, JT, he'll continue on that journey with us uh, at this <laughs> episode and beyond. But uh, we've been exploring. If not, I'm we, going to be making an Exodus. There we go. Uh, so bad. Oh, bad. Yep. Uh, so we've been looking at the law, and now we're coming out of that. Um, don't fret. Uh, you're going back into it. Uh, we don't get out of the rest of Exodus <laughs> without more interesting stuff to explore. But for Exodus 24, which is what we're going to look at today, we see the confirmation of the covenant. Now, uh, I'm about to read Exodus 24, and this is one of those times where it felt like it would be wise for us to read the chapter in its entirety. Um, and so I'm going to read Exodus 24 verses 1 through 18. But before we do that, Jen, could you maybe provide a Exodus recap up until chapter 24? I didn't, you weren't aware I was going to ask yeah, you to do you it, even, but I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah, so. yeah, feels great. Okay, so we have Israel being set free out of Egypt and brought to, I'm really speeding this up. Are you cool with that? Brought 100%, to, please. Okay, brought I mean, to, I, it's, it's good because JT does have a hard stop. So <laughs> do the abbreviated <laughs> version of the recap as fast yeah, as possible. Yeah, I want to make a plague joke related to that, but I'm not going to. So Israel is brought out of Egypt and is delivered into the wilderness to the foot of Mount Sinai where uh, they receive the Ten Commandments. And then they also receive the Book of the Covenant, which is the more explicit application of what's contained in the Ten Commandments. And then we have this thing that I have affectionately called Yo-Yo Moses, where Moses keeps going up and down the mountain. And in the case of what we're going to see today, um, he he comes down the mountain to confirm the covenant with the people. And so the covenant is going to be basically ratified. The people are going to agree that they have received these words, and we're going to see a ceremonial process that will um, that will signify that God and his people are in covenant with each other. That's Bang. Too fast? Look at that. No, it was great. I mean, even 
snuck in a couple of jokes there. Way to go. Uh, I'm going to read Exodus 24 um, and uh, we'll jump in. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you uh, in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and drank." The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Okay, let's start with this. When it says that Moses brought them the book of the covenant and he's talking to them. Jen, you already said this in your recap, but what is that book of the covenant? The book of the covenant are the specific applications of the um, laws that are articulated in principle in the Ten Commandments. And they are what was to be used by the judges to judge disputes between the people in civil cases. So that book is a part of what's happening at Sinai. This, the mm-hmm. law codes that mm-hmm. have been given are an important part. We've talked about this on previous episodes, but JT, real quickly, as a reminder, if somebody's just tuning in, why is this book of the covenant, why are these law codes helpful for Israel? Yeah, I mean, it distinguishes, I mean, if we're going back just the simple threefold use of the law, it reminds them of who God is, who they are, how they're supposed to act as a nation, and ultimately what God finds pleasing. And so mm-hmm. God is giving them a way to be distinct among the nations. They've been liberated from uh, Pharaoh and from Egypt, but they're still developing an identity of who they're supposed to be as they reign and rule as God's people in the land that he's given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is the law. One way you could think of it is this is not only just morality, though it is that, and it's certainly theology and ethics, uh, a horizontal and a vertical relationship, but it's really meant to distinguish Israel, Abraham's family, among the nations, that they would be the, the people that are living in a distinct way because they live in the presence of God. Uh, if God is holy, they'll be a holy people. If God is king, they're going to reign as priests and queens and kings uh, on behalf of Yahweh, which is something we're going to see today in the covenant Mm -hmm. specifically as they're sprinkled with blood, which we'll get to in a minute. But they're meant to live differently from the nations and the law is going to help them do that. And not just differently because it's different, differently because they they live with God. Mm -hmm. That's right. 
Well, not only that, but just really quickly, it also ties into God as a God of order. Because if you think about Mm -hmm. probably the most popular uh, TV franchise in all of of legal franchises, it is called Law and Order. You guys didn't fill in the blank for me. Law and Order. (laughs) Uh, In other words, in our minds, collectively, we understand the connection between law and order and God is a God of order. And so when he gives the law to his people, he he first, as we've mentioned before in Exodus 18, he forms a judicial system uh, by giving advisors to Moses who can who can carry out these laws among the people, and then he fills it with his good yep. law. And so we've got form and fullness, and we've got the established, we've got um, out of chaos order within the people of God. And so one of the ways that they will be distinct from the nations is that their law, um, if if obeyed, will make them an exceedingly orderly nation to the point that they will be a light to the Gentiles. Now, I want to move us to talking about the role of blood here and 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 the confirmation of this covenant. But before we do that, I, I do want to retread some ground that we have talked about many times. We haven't just talked about it many times in this season. We've talked about it many times in the history of the podcast. I actually was going back and looking at this when we've talked through some passages in Genesis. We've done specific episodes on covenant as a theme. We've answered in Q&A format, I think at least three times. But It is a big deal um, when we're thinking through covenant because it's a central part of the thematic architecture of the whole story of the Bible. So let me ask the question, maybe for what feels like the 12th time for most of our listeners, but might be the first time for some of them, what covenant is being confirmed here? Is this a new covenant? Is it an old covenant? We know that we've heard the word before. We've heard the word with Noah after the flood. We've heard the word with Abraham in Genesis 15. And uh, we've now are are hearing about the covenant again. Uh, It's been invoked now. So is what's happening at Sinai with Moses, this covenant that's being confirmed, is it a new thing? Is it an old thing? Is it both new and old? We'll ask it that way. Yes. (laughs) The answer is yes, Kyle. <laughs> yeah, no, it, this is, this is, there's a lot of different ways to look at this. Mm-hmm. And just to be, there's probably people who are listening to this podcast who come from different faith traditions of, about which we can have dialogue and disagreement. This is not a, a matter of orthodoxy, but there's some traditions that would see a great deal of continuity between uh, the covenants and how they work uh, beginning in Genesis through Revelation. And then there's some that would be like a, a covenantalism, uh, kind of a Presbyterian uh, perhaps some Lutheran traditions, Anglican, Episcopalian traditions. And then there's some other traditions that would begin to see a bit of discontinuity. That would be the more Baptistic traditions, dispensational traditions. And so, and there's even a spectrum in all of those spaces. So the way that I would want to talk about this is this is both new and old. Why, why is it old? I'll talk about that first. It's, it's God is confirming something old because whether we want to talk about the covenant before creation among the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to covenant to save and redeem, even the covenant of works and grace potentially found in Genesis 1 through 3 that got Adam and Eve are called to specifically obey in the land that they've been given and are given a law, though they disobey. God offers a covenant of grace by saying that one day I will come to crush the head of the serpent through the seed of the woman. In Genesis 6, you've mentioned with Noah. And Genesis 12 is the one that I want to highlight specifically here is there you also have the shedding of blood in order for covenant to happen, where the animals, if you go back to Genesis 12, 15, and 17, uh, God says, Abraham, take these animals, slice them down the middle, and ultimately make a pathway full of blood, which the Lord himself walks down, not Abraham. And we've talked about this before on the podcast, but just by way of reminder, this is God saying that Abraham 
whether it's me or you who are faithful or unfaithful to the covenant, I will bear the consequences of your unfaithfulness. And so God himself walks down in a, in a fire, again, something that we, we've talked about here in Exodus also, in this pot of, fi- of fire, God kind of sloughs down this bloody aisle saying, I will bear the consequences through my blood by covenantal faithfulness and covering for the sins of your covenantal unfaithfulness, something we see here too. So I do think there's an element that God is reminding God's people of this covenant specifically of their status as God's people. That's important. They are God's people. This is the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there is something new here going on in this covenant. It's not just that God is reminding or confirming this previous covenant with Abraham. He's also giving them what you might call their vocation of living as God's holy people of a nation of priests who are going to reign and rule on God's behalf and live in the in the land that was supposed to be given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I actually found a, a quote that I think might be helpful here from Christopher Wright. He says, the Sinai covenant is a matter not of the people's status, but of their vocation. Sinai yeah. is a covenant with the context of an existing covenant to which the whole community is now responding. And so they're aware of the context of this previous covenant. And uh, another uh, book that people might be, want to be familiar with or a line of thought um Steve Wellam wrote a book called Progressive Covenantalism, which I find myself in large agreement with. And it's this idea that these covenants are yep. not uh, the same. They're also not so different, that, but they are rather progressing covenantally over the course of the biblical storyline. So they've been given their identity. They are sons and daughters. Mm-hmm. And now they're being given a vocation to live as a nation of priests among the nations. And that's how this covenant is functioning. Can I ask you, JT, we've had conversations about this, and I feel like you've been really helpful and helping me understand how to talk about this, but let me see if I'm getting any better at it. Would would it sure. be fair to maybe say that the Abrahamic covenant is like a family charter and the Mosaic covenant is like the rules of the house? Yeah, I like I like the way of saying that. Yep. So the family charter, here's who we are. Yeah. Mosaic covenant, here's how we're gonna live. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Good. I think that's really helpful. That's a great analogy for it. I'm gonna steal that. Um uh and I not not steal it. I'm gonna give proper credit to you every time I use it into perpetuity, whatever I gotta say. Uh you know, I know there's people out there stealing sermons and stuff. If that's you, just don't do that. Just don't. Um just don't do that. Okay, so let's talk about the blood here uh, because this introduces a new component. And it's not that blood hasn't shown up in the story so far. I mean, really quickly, we can rattle off where blood has shown up. It has shown up. It showed up in Genesis, in Genesis 15, with the covenant ceremony that JT was just talking about. There is blood as it pertains to covering, atonement, and covenant making. And so that's there. Um, there is the larger covenant tradition. This I won't get too far into this, but the covenant tradition that you're seeing in Genesis and in Exodus is within the scope of a much larger custom of cutting covenants in the ancient world. That shouldn't surprise us. God is regularly using ancient forms that were known culturally and historically to speak to his people because he's kind and he speaks to them in a language they would understand. So there's a backdrop of bloody covenant making all throughout the ancient world. So in Israel, they definitely would have been familiar with the role of blood in covenant keeping, covenant making, and in the consequences of breaking covenant. Where else has blood shown up in the Exodus story, though? 
I can think of a couple of times. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's memorialized obviously in, in their flesh, in the, in the rite yes. of circumcision so that there would be a constant uh, reminder. And then when you get into the story of Exodus, you have um, the Exodus itself would be an, an event, the, uh, yep. the Passover event. But even before that, we have um, the little ex- uh, the little uh, moment where Zipporah has to um, circumcise their son on on the fly. Is that the way to say that? We probably have to. I don't know, that. but say circumcision <laughs> on the fly is exactly the right way to say it. So, gosh, this is going great. Uh, no, we'll so, just keep on moving, yeah, but I, we'll that's another keep, one I'm going to use in the future. Going. Uh, yeah, Zipporah says, You become a bridegroom of blood to me. And that's really an mm-hmm. indicator of how foreign the way that Yahweh is is utilizing the idea of covenant. Like, while it's it's same, but it's same, but different to her, it's like, yep. I don't get this. This is weird. And then uh, I'm putting words in Zipporah's mouth. Uh, and then you say, so then you have the Passover event, which is obviously the, the shedding of blood for, um, mm-hmm. for, uh, the cleansing and the freedom of the yep. people of God. Anything else you guys can think of up to this point? I mean, then the Nile being turned to blood as oh, an right, act right, of right. judgment. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, So yes, blood shows up in a big way in the story so far, but here it's playing a a little bit different. Probably the the most closely associated out of the ones we just mentioned would be the Genesis 15 story, uh, Zipporah with the circumcision and the Passover would be the closest we get to the purpose of blood in those prior stories being connected with the purpose of blood in this story. So let's just ask this question. Why all the blood? Like, I think you can, I, I, I'm reminded, I have a, uh, one of our dear friends sits behind us in church on Sundays and they have a son and we had just got done singing for our kids, uh, uh, mid-service dismissal for elementary kids. One of the things that we do in mid-service dismissal is we'll have a hymn of the month, which we'll teach to the kids so that then as families, they can worship together using the hymn of the month. And we use it specifically to introduce hymns that maybe are not as familiar to them. And one of the things that we did was, um, oh, precious. Precious, uh, or no, we were talking about uh, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, precious is the, that makes me. He was talking about the blood, right? How does it go? I, I'm I not going to sing it, but you know the song. But he goes afterwards, this song that talks about blood a lot. Um, <laughs> afterwards, right when we pray, we're dismissing the kids. I hear him ask his mom behind me, he goes, Gosh, that was for the kids moment. And I was like, <laughs> We're doing our job here. Uh, we're doing our job here. It's like, yeah. So why all the blood here? Why Why does blood play such a huge role in the story of scripture and in Exodus, but broadly throughout the story itself? I think more broadly, you know, I mean, obviously blood matters, but maybe even just kind of zooming out before we get to blood is because sacrifice matters mm-hmm. because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve and our subsequent and consequent and rebellion in them. There is there's sacrifice. God says that from the dust you were taken to the dust you will return. This is the consequences of our sinfulness. And so a sacrifice needs to be made in order for God's just wrath to be satisfied because because of our rebellion, death is the consequence. And you can't really have death, whether that's human death or animal death, without the shedding of blood. Mm-hmm. The author of Hebrews uh, reminds us of this, that this, the shedding of blood uh, is 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 a result of the sacrifice, and the sacrifice is a result of our sinful rebellion. So whether it's in Genesis and God uh, uh, sacrificing an animal and clothing Adam and Eve with the, with the skins of the animal, or even you think about, like we said in Genesis 15, and the slaughter of the animals in the Abrahamic covenant— 
or even the subsequent substitutionary ram that is found in the thicket when Isaac is meant to be sacrificed? Is is there a sacrifice necessary as a result of of our rebellion? And that means the shedding the shedding of blood. And so, uh, and it's not just the shedding of blood. I think there's there's more than this. But just real quickly, one thing that the shedding of blood is meant. I think to do for us is really just in human terms, remind us of the seriousness of our sin. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, 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 like when you think about what Jerusalem would have been like uh, moving forward past Exodus, and you think about David and Solomon setting up the temple and the sacrificial rites, or even just here in the tabernacle and the sacrifices that priests would have to make, it, it's pretty hard to, I mean, I don't want to be too graphic here, but literally witness or participate in the slaughter and the sacrifice of an animal and not be reminded it was my sin that put him there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was my sin that put this lamb, this spotless lamb, in this space, and he is the the life of this animal is now leaving it mm-hmm. because of my sinfulness. And I think it's supposed to remind us that our sin should never be taken lightly. That this yeah. uh, this literally requires the death of another if it's not going to be the death of me. I think that's number one, but also the good news is, and we can talk more about this when we get to the sprinkling of the blood here in a minute, is it also is what cleanses. That yeah. The author of Hebrews again reminds it's no longer the blood of, of bulls and goats that will have forgiveness of sin, but the blood of Jesus is when it's sprinkled upon us or or covered over us, it's actually what takes our filthy rags and, and makes them white as snow. Mm-hmm. The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. Yes, blood is connected to sacrifice, and these are connected to atonement. Um, that mm-hmm. there does need to be a covering, right? The blood can't. Um, we see this here in the story, so you might read it and go, "Okay, I understand the sacrifice side of things, and I understand that that there that death is the consequence of sin." But 
it says in verse six, and Moses took half the blood and he put it in basins and half the blood he threw against the altar. He takes the book of a covenant. He reads it out loud. The people say, this is what we will do. And then it says he takes the blood and he throws it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Um, this is a very, this is a visceral graphic thing. And I think it does offend modern sensibilities. This idea of Moses just throwing the blood on the people, casting the blood upon the people. But it's an important part of understanding um, the way that atonement is made. It's not just that there must be death. It's that we must be covered in that death. It, it, you know, we might, we must be covered by it. Um, this is why I think there's such a point in the New Testament of talking about that we have been crucified with Christ, that we have been united to him in his death. It's not enough just for atonement to be made out there and that apportioned to us. It's that we must be covered by atonement mm -hmm. if we are going to be those who walk in God's righteous ways. And if we are going to be those who are righteous before God himself. The, the, the debt must be paid, but the debt must also, that, that payment must be delivered to the account of God's people. And here in the covering of blood, we get a picture of that. And I think it's easy, some, sometimes I, when I'm interacting with Christians around a conversation like this, is they can think that God of the Old Testament was so bloody. Mm -hmm. uh, the God of the New Testament just kind of offers forgiveness. Uh, and that's just not anywhere near close to the story of the Bible. You think about Jesus's words uh, up up in the upper room leading him to Calvary. He's celebrating this moment of the Passover with his disciples, and they're gathered together. And what would have been said, most likely by the head of the house, who's helping the family or the disciples with remembering what God did as he delivered them from the Passover is, this is the blood of the covenant. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what would have been said. And a reminder of this moment is we've been given the book of the covenant. We're now God's yeah. people living in God's land, living according to God's laws. And what Jesus says is this is my blood mm -hmm. of the covenant. Mm -hmm. He changes it from a definite article, the, to personalizing it, saying me. Mm -hmm. And he, mm -hmm. so one of the, again, another line, I'm really enjoying this commentary by Christopher Wright. He says, the story of God spans from the covenantal blood of Mount Sinai to the upper room of Cal in Calvary, which I think is really helpful. But I would even say it then goes beyond that. You think about yep. First Peter uh, chapter 1, when he's writing to these elect exiles who are now kind of dispersed in the diaspora, he says this, to God's elect exiles scattered through the provinces. And then in, in uh, he continues down and he says, to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. sprinkled by his blood. And mm -hmm. so this story of the shedding of blood is something that spans from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through the end of Revelation. It's just now yeah. this final sacrifice has been made, and it's those of us who've been sprinkled by the blood of Christ who are now consecrated as, as priests unto God, uh, which we can get to in a minute, but also uh, have been cleansed because of the, the the work of the sacrificial lamb. Yeah, and really the, the, the passage that ties together the one we're in the one that JT just mentioned in First Peter, and then the one that we see in Revelation is Exodus nineteen six, where he says, "You will be mm -hmm. to me a kingdom and priests." 
And so he's already said that's what they're going to be. And then the sprinkled blood here, in the same way that the law is looking toward Christ for its fulfillment, this sprinkled blood is also looking toward Christ for its fulfillment. Um, The people are sprinkled here, and we should think that that's a little odd because we haven't read what's about to come when the tabernacle is built and what happens at the consecration of the tabernacle. And that is that the tabernacle will be sprinkled with blood, and the only people who will be sprinkled with blood in the tabernacle are the priests when they are being Mm -hmm. ordained. And so this is a hint. It's a hint of what is going to come to fulfillment um, after Christ's blood sprinkles his people. Because when we get to 1 Peter, we're told that he has made us where we are a kingdom and priests to God. And then you get to Revelation and it says, he has made you this. It says it twice. Um, and so it's a looking back on on the work of Christ uh, and, and th- that we are all a part now of what we would call the, the priesthood of all believers. But the difference between what we see here in Exodus and what we see in Revelation is that here it is the Israelites who are sprinkled. And when we get to Revelation, it is every, it is people from every nation, mm-hmm. tribe, and tongue. So it's that expansive understanding understanding of the covenants of God as they go out to the ends of the earth. Well, you guys nailed it. Uh, you even nailed the next two questions here. So I'm going to Oh, shoot. <laughs> was, it was great. I was like, well, there we go. As, as usual, JT I and I are super invested in reading the run no, sheet but, that Kyle so faithfully puts together. <laughs> but that was that was really good, though. Um, you guys just are you're pros at this. Um, uh, so the blood, I think you guys have, have hit it. I have nothing to add to that. I think that was beautifully said. Well, I'm in ignorance of the run sheet again, but I do think there's another aspect to what we see here with the sprinkling of the blood. And it's what the people have just said. They have said all the, all that you have, you've commanded us to do, we will do all the Lord has spoken. We will do, and we will be obedient. They say. And of course, mm-hmm. we all cringe a little bit, right? And so one aspect of the sprinkling of the blood here is that Moses is acknowledging that that is absolutely not true. Yeah. And, and and not that, which is not to say that we should dog on Israel for saying the right response to God making covenant with them. It is the right response, but mm-hmm. but it is it is also so that we can understand that when they don't, um, a- atonement will be made. Yes. So, okay. I want to move forward here and think through the meal that we see, because it's not just that blood is an important part of covenant making and keeping ceremonies, or that it factors into the question of atonement, redemption, salvation, but that there's a meal that's shared in the presence of God in verses 9 and 11. It says, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. They saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones, like the very heaven for clearness. They did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and they ate and drank. Now, here is a meal that is held in the very presence of God as a part of the confirmation of this blood-bought covenant. Does that ring any bells of some of, of, of does it ripple beyond this story into the New Testament in any way at all? Talk about the biggest softball in the history of me asking does, questions. Can we come back to that in a second? I want to get Stop to that, but I got a question for you. Okay, it <laughs> it's too much of a softball. Hey, do we have a script for this anyway? Let's no, just go ahead and talk we just make it, it up. <laughs> okay, but I've got a question for you guys. So, you know, uh, thinking, and I'm going to get to the Gospels. They're coming up this mountain, and they, they see, in, in some sense, they see God, but ultimately what we know they see is what? His, His feet. feet. Yep. Mm-hmm his feet and they, and they see where he's walking. And so, uh, in three of the gospel accounts, the, the major discourse that's given is 
the meal that you're talking about, Kyle, mm-hmm. the meal of the Lord's Supper and Jesus instituting and reorienting all of human history on him. In one of the Gospels, that meal is not talked about. Do you know which Gospel it is? Mark. I'm going to go with, oh, okay. I was guessing. John. I was going to say John. <laughs> John! <Golly! laughs> the, the, the not synoptic I gospel, panicked when Kyle. you said Mark, and I'm like, maybe yeah. I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah. No, but in, in the upper room in John's gospel, what is talked about? Uh, foot washing. Washing of feet. Yeah. 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 And I wonder if there's any connection here. Mm-hmm. The God that they see his feet, mm-hmm. who comes down to Mount Sinai, and they have to transcend mm-hmm. up this mountain to get a glimpse of him, in John's gospel is the one who you no longer have to go up the mountain mm-hmm. to find God. Mm-hmm. He is the image of he, uh, John chapter mm-hmm. one, in the beginning was the word of the mm-hmm. with God, and he did what? He came to tabernacle mm-hmm. among mm-hmm. us, yeah. John 1 mm-hmm. verse 14. And I wonder if John's doing something interesting here, not just culturally with foot washing and servanthood, mm-hmm. but he's saying the one who we went up to see his feet mm-hmm. has now come down to us to wash our feet. Mm-hmm. Huh. Mm-hmm. Huh. Wow. Well, I have some other interesting connections. Would you like to hear those? Of course. <laughs> wow. I've never thought, well, I've never thought about that though, JT. That's new to I me. Know. So I don't like read my John Bible closely yeah. enough, evidently. Yeah. He came down. Yeah. We had to go up in, in Exodus. Yeah. Uh-huh. This covenant forces you to go up the mountain. The new covenant is God comes down the mountain to us mm-hmm. and we don't just see his feet and have a meal with him. He actually washes our feet so that we can have a meal yeah, with him. Yeah, I think that's really good. And I think I we can also I gotta write this down. <laughs> we can gotta, we can gotta, also <laughs> make good connections to Jesus walking on water. Um, yep. because you know, we're seeing here the the crystal clear is it's is a perfectly still um image of of feet on water. And I think I was just noticing as we were reading it that first they were sprinkled with blood and then they go up to where there is essentially um a, a laver, a basin. And so I think there's some there's some sense of the entrance that they'll have into the tabernacle where it's first a passage through blood and then through water. We're seeing that in some sense again because, and I say that because when we get to Revelation and this image shows up again in Revelation four and five, where we hear about the one seated on the throne having his feet on a on a, a sea that was made of emerald. I think it says emerald there. That that is a that's a reference to um, tabernacle furnishing, specifically the laver, mm-hmm. which in in Solomon's temple was called the bronze sea because it was so big. And so um, Mm. I think we're seeing a lot of like hints at the tabernacle design that is about to happen um, and what, what gives us admittance into the presence of God as well. Even the great gradations of access to God. Yes, exactly. All of the people at the bottom, kind of like the outer court, you've got the 70, 74 who come up and then perhaps Moses Moses who who can go all the way up to the top as the priest. And so there's tabernacle imagery all Mm -hmm. over this. Mm -hmm. No, for sure. And I think that's why I like to call the tabernacle the mobile Mount Sinai. You can yeah. use that if you want. If, no, I feel good about if, just you using it, but thank you. Are you sure? Okay. <laughs> just kidding. That's actually really good. <laughs> Dang, because it is going to be in a chapter you're reading to review oh, for me in good, like good, 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 good. a couple chapters. So good. glad that that didn't pass the test. Yeah. Um, you were going to say something else, Jen. No, that's all I got. Nope. I think okay. that's all I got. Well, yeah. Um, but this meal is a picture. Um, uh, well, one, it's important to know that in ancient Near Eastern world, particularly in the covenant making ceremonies, um, that it's very likely that Israel's covenant ceremonies here are riffing off of, particularly Hittite covenant making and keeping ceremonies, that a meal was often the 
final portion or a significant portion of that ceremony. So just one kind of historical context note, the tradition of covenant making and keeping ceremonies in the region, in the world at that time involved a meal. Again, as we've said before, that shouldn't disillusion us with the uniqueness of what's happening here. It should be a testament to the kindness and condescension of God Mm -hmm. that he's speaking and welcoming Israel in, in a way that was intelligible to them, Mm -hmm. right? It's a part of his humility, his condescension, his kindness, his divine accommodation and how he's communicating to his people. But beyond that, we know that one of the most significant ripples of this in this story is going to be the Lord's Supper, which is a meal that is a blood-bought meal where it's not just that they're going to eat in the presence of God, but that Christ plays host at his table and the elements are not something outside of him. The elements are his body and blood. Um, Now, this is a really important thing to remember because uh, in most uh, historical writing on the Lord's Supper, and maybe for you the Lord's Supper is a relatively oh, innocuous, kind of harmless part of Christian practice. But you might be surprised to find out that a lot of ink has been spilled and not a little blood on people's views of the Lord's Supper specifically. And this is would factor into most serious theological explorations of the Lord's Supper and its theological grounding in the Old Testament. This meal here, here is a blood-covered people um, who are now feasting in the presence of the Lord. And the Lord's Supper is a way that we reenact and we rehearse this and we remember this, that God hasn't just made covenant with us. He hasn't just atoned and paid for our blood debt uh, that is uh, the proper consequence of sin, but he's invited us into his fellowship to eat and to drink. And that is a really, this is a really beautiful foreshadowing of this greater meal that would come. And JT, some of the things you just added about the feet of Jesus and John 13 in particular now makes me feel like I have to completely go rethink some of those connections because there's a little bit more texture to it now than even before I'd heard you make those things. But this idea of meals and eating in the presence of the Lord is a big part of covenant making and covenant keeping throughout the rest of the story of the Bible with the Lord's Supper being probably the, the principal New Testament fulfillment of this. That's right. And and sometimes I think all of that, I agree with Kyle. And um, what, what I do think we can do sometimes with this meal language is sometimes meals can be kind of a cavalier. This is a different kind of meal. Like they're walking up into the holy presence of God. And the only way that this meal can happen is because the shedding of blood. And so what the Lord's Supper helps us do is, uh, you think about the disciples and Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper sitting there, they're very aware that this that we're celebrating the God who destroyed our enemies in Egypt, who saved us through his just uh, grace and mercy that was given to us. And we're also celebrating these this people who went up on this mountain where God has come down in this holy fire, and uh, they're they're kind of shell shocked because of the holy presence of God, and they're now invited to eat with Him. That's the exact same God who's now in the upper room with Jesus as He's instituting this Lord's Supper, and they're they're being reminded that you are the God who was on. I mean, not to talk about Christophanies, but I'm not. I didn't mean to do that. Like this, this is the incarnate God who was present with us at Mount Sinai, who's now present with us in the upper room, and who also will be present with us at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Uh, Revelation chapter 19 talks about there's a future day coming where we will celebrate this meal again with Jesus. You know, Jesus, when he institutes the Lord's Supper, he he does tell us to look back. And often that's all we do mm-hmm. is he says, 
as you gather together, eat this in remembrance of me. This is the blood of the new covenant. Drink this in remembrance of me. Remembrance is true. But do you know what else he says? He says, look forward because I will not eat this or drink of the fruit of the vine until I come. And so he is also, he's also helping shape our instincts and our affections and desires. It's not just that we're looking back to the cross of Christ in remembrance. We're also looking forward to the marriage supper of the lamb. And in some sense, every time we gather around the Lord's table as a church, we're doing both of those things. We're situating our, uh, you've used this language, Kyle, our our Christ-centered imaginations as we both look back and look forward as the blood-bought people who will also enjoy a new covenant and a marriage feast with the lamb that will never end. Mm-hmm. That's right. Now, uh, just to land the plane here, we get some creation echoes as if we didn't have enough biblical resonances enough in verses 15 through 18. Moses goes up the mountain, the cloud covered the mountain, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And then when Moses entered the cloud, what do we have here? We have a flood echo. Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting because this right here, Sinai, which, and listen, if you want a real detailed account of how Sinai plus the tabernacle plus the temple are a retelling of much of the creation story, you can go look at the work of G.K. Beale. He has made this a lifelong project of tracing this theme and he'll he he'll find it everywhere uh, and, and and for good reason because it is everywhere mm-hmm. but here and the last part here we just get a just a snapshot and it's like both of these mega stories in Israel's past are being invoked in the, the language here you know uh there is this uh six day seven day thing then there's the 40 days 40 nights it's just a it's a very interesting just kind of narrative detail uh we talk about ripples beyond Exodus there are a lot of ripples before Exodus as well in the story itself and here's here's two of them where they're calling into to mind the creation of the story, the creation of the world, and the recreation of the world. Because what's happening with Moses at Sinai? It's the recreation of God's people. Mm-hmm. It's the it's like the so I think that what's happening is not just God created the world, God recreated the world. He is not recreating the whole world this time, but at what's happening at Sinai, he is reforging and recreating his people on the mm-hmm. other side of rescue. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's why there you, we have this symmetry here. Jen, do you have something to add yeah, on to that? Yeah, I love that. You know, I mean, basic Bible literacy one-on-one is to understand how the Bible uses numbers when it's using them symbolically. And so understanding a six, a seven, a four, and a 10, and many multiples of fours and tens, and which is not to mention 12s, that's not the exhaustive list of numbers that are good to have in your back pocket. But um, and that's probably for another episode, but you might just dig around and see what you can find on that in between this episode and when we yeah, just finally get around Google to Bible talking about that. Yeah, nothing weird will come up. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. Okay, let me just qualify that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not a magical use of numbers. It's a use of numbers to give memory hooks to people so that they will remember mm. the story and get the point. And so, yeah, six yeah. is always related to um, cre- creatures and humans. Seven always related to divine perfection, uh, et cetera. But JT's well, got a hard stop, so I don't want to go into I it. Know, that's I what I was about was to coming. say. Further. That's what I was about coming. to say. Yeah. You know, I was about to, you beat me to it. I was about to say oh, there no, is I'm another number that's important, and that mm-hmm. is the number one, which is how many <laughs> minutes we have left until JT's hard stop. Uh, I learned oh a lot goodness. from, I learned a lot from this discussion. Um, I'm really excited to keep going with this. We are about to wrap up this season, and you're thinking, wait, you're not through with Exodus. We know that, and you know that. <laughs> Next season, we will continue our journey through the back half of Exodus, but we do have one more episode 
dealing with the sanctuary, contributions for the sanctuary and the tabernacle. Then we'll do some Q&A episodes as well. If you're online, you can leave us a review over at Apple Podcasts. If you drop a question in your review, we'll take into consideration for our Q&A episode that we'll be recording here in a couple of weeks. You can find Knowing Faith on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, you may have heard about great resources or products earlier in the show. You can check out the show notes for a link to our sponsor's webpage or the Train the Church website under the Knowing Faith podcast to find resources, discounts, products we vet and believe in. Uh, leave us a review over at Apple Podcasts. Go to trainthechurch.com slash support to find out about our newsletter and how you can get some cool behind the scenes stuff. We encourage you to check out our sister shows. If you've listened to all the episodes of Knowing Faith this season, but you've missed Tiny Theologians, Family Discipleship Podcast, Confronting Christianity, or Starting Place with Elizabeth Woodson, then you are missing out. Go check those out. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Grace and peace. Did this episode spark an interest to learn more about Jesus, the Bible, or just theology in general? You can receive free theological training through Midwestern Seminaries for the Church Institute, where you can learn more about the Old and New Testament, Christian theology, preaching, leadership, and more, even at your own pace. Learn more and get started today at ftcinstitute.com. Again, that's ftcinstitute.com for free training on Old and New Testament, Christian theology, preaching, and leadership. Go and check out these incredible resources from our season sponsor.